Well, good morning, everyone. So thankful that you've joined us at Fellowship Greenville today. My name is Jason. I'm one of the guys on the team, and we really do appreciate you being here today to worship with us. And if you're a regular, it's great to see you. Uh, before we jump in to Revelation 2, which is where we'll be this morning, so if you have your copy of the scriptures, you can go ahead and turn there. But I wanted to take just a moment and celebrate a couple of things with you as we start our time today. Each Labor Day weekend, our student ministry heads to Woodlands Camp in Cleveland, uh, Georgia for what we call EPIC. And this year, over 400 students and 100 leaders spent three days having an unforgettable time together. We were a picture of all of them, look at that. That is a whole lot of teenagers. By the way, uh, you 100 leaders, you are the real MVPs. We know, we know what you did. I say that, yeah. I say that as a student ministry pastor back in the day myself, thanks for that. If you recall, two weeks ago on Sunday of Labor Day weekend, we took a few minutes here uh, in our service and, and prayed for all of our students that the Lord would draw them to himself and encourage their hearts and, and grow them. And the Lord is so kind. He really is. He's so kind and gracious to hear our prayers. We uh, learned that uh, 38 students trusted Christ and made a decision to follow him. We love that. And over 100 other students acknowledged that they had not been intentionally following Jesus and that they would like to do so. So that's so encouraging. I'm so thankful for the team around here uh, with our students and with our kids uh, the Next Generation team and all of you here that volunteer in that ministry, we can't, say th we can't say thank you enough, can't celebrate it enough. Thanks for all that you're doing and what the Lord's doing in the hearts and lives of our kids and students. I also wanted to take a minute and just say thank you to so many of you that continue to extend grace to us in leadership and grace towards each other as we keep growing here at Fellowship Greenville. There are many people checking us out and attending and plugging in and joining us uh, here at FG. As a matter of fact, we have a membership dinner tonight with over 175 people who are taking their next step and actually becoming uh, members here. And I gotta believe that's some sort of record. And I also think that our team's having a hard time figuring out how much queso <laughs> to purchase. That's a lot of, that's a lot of people. Uh, we're so thankful. Listen, if you're newer with us and wondering how you can find out more about us and what it means to belong here, I wanna invite you to join us for something we call Starting Point. We do this on the regular and our next one is Sunday morning, October the 22nd. You can hit the QR code there on the screen, the QR code in front of you, the seat in front of you. And there at Starting Point, you can learn more about us and how to connect and how to belong here. So if you've never been to one, get to one of those. But I really just did wanna say thank you for being patient with us and with one another. We know in leadership, we know that the parking lot is packed and we know that traffic on Highway 14, both directions is stacked up and we know that kids' rooms are filling up quickly as are the auditoriums, which means I could maybe take a moment and invite any of you that are interested to join us on Sunday evenings for our 5 p.m. service. We do the exact same service at 5 p.m. that we do at 9 and 11, but we've heard from so many that have said not having to battle the Sunday morning traffic has been their main motivator in coming to the 5 p.m. service. And so if that's your deal, and if you regularly, if your spouse regularly pulls into this parking lot and mumbles, complains, honks their horn at other brothers and sisters in Christ, 
I wanna lovingly suggest that you just go, hey babe, what about the 5 p.m.? Because I don't think you should be this angry walking into a church service, all right? And if you're sitting there wondering, well, why don't y'all just make some more room? That is great thinking on your part. And we are, we're launching Fellowship Greenville Adams Mill down the road six miles within the next 12 to 16 months and more on that in the weeks to come. And even today, through the Upstate Church Collective, that fellowship and Summit Church collaborated to start 20 months ago, a mere 20 months ago. We're launching our very first church this morning. Redemption Life Fellowship has begun. Their service started at 10.30 today over off of Pelham Road. I was receiving uh, messages and pictures in between services today. It is packed out over there. So thank you, so many of you that have prayed for, served with, given financially to the Upstate Church Collective above and beyond what you already give here at Fellowship Greenville. And you can give to the Upstate Church Collective. But because of that, this crew is starting with great solid footing. I'm so thankful. And today we are launching a new gospel-centered, missionally-driven church in our community. And we couldn't do that without all of you. Praying, serving, giving. And uh, I just wanted to take some time today to thank so many of you. And I also wanted to stop. We did it in the first service. We'll do it again now. And I wanted to pray for our friends over at Redemption Life. So let's pray together. Father God, we are uh, incredibly thankful and humbled at what it is you are up to in our midst here at Fellowship. For the people that uh, continue to join us to be a part of this church family, to those that have been a part of this church family for decades and decades and everybody in between. We don't take for granted what it is you're up to in our midst. We know and acknowledge again that numbers don't drive anything. And at the same time, as we celebrate and talk about 38 students, those aren't numbers, those are people. And 175 who wanna belong to this church family, those aren't numbers, those are people. A sister church being launched down the street. It's not a building, it's a people. And there is no greater joy for us than to join you in what it is that you are up to. For our sister church there, would you use them in a mighty way in this city, in this region, to make much of you in the gospel? And we will thank you for that. We love you. In Jesus' sweet name we pray, amen. Today I'm looking forward to continuing our study through the first few chapters of Revelation in a series we have entitled Seven, What the Spirit is Saying to the Churches. And if you're uh, just joining us, we invite you to go back and listen in on the first few messages. All of our messages are online on our website and social media platforms that are out there. You can use the QR code in front of you as I've already mentioned. And hey, listen, I can't say this enough. Our communications team here is the best and they are constantly uh, working diligently to put content out that will encourage you in your walk with Jesus and keep you updated on things you might need to know or things you might've missed, including uh, our Sunday services if you're out of town or under the weather. So we're studying through the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation, and we've mentioned 
that these are really messages or sermons from Jesus to the seven churches mentioned in Revelation that the apostle John is writing down while on the island of Patmos and he's sending them on their way and we've walked through the message of Jesus to the church at Ephesus and uh, last week the message that Jesus had for the church of Smyrna. Side note, hit pause for a second. Next week is the church of Thyatira and they, they had some things. And uh, I wanted to give a little bit, I know some of you bring your kids into the service on the regular, which we're all for, but I also wanna let you know that next Sunday morning, the content of said message because of what's happening in Thyatira is a little more uh, MA than PG-13. Can we, this is for mature audience. Now listen, you can still, we leave that at your discretion, but through our history here at times when we're teaching through books of the Bible, we come to a passage that's pretty explicit on some things and we talk about it because it's in there. And so just wanted to give you a heads up if that applies to you. And that brings us today to the church of Pergamum. And they had some issues and challenges as well that I think interestingly enough are issues and challenges for many people today, maybe for you, maybe for those that you're walking with in life. And the issue is this, tolerance, in the name of love is valued more than loving each other with the truth. Tolerance in the name of love is valued more than loving each other with the truth. So let's read through Revelation 2, 12 through 17, and then we'll walk through it. This is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Verse 16 says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. Now. Before we walk through the verses, I wanted to give you some insight into Pergamum. We've been doing that each week because it's really helpful, I think, in unpacking what Jesus is saying to these churches and to us. We know that Pergamum, much like Ephesus and Smyrna, was uh, big and it was an important city in the region. It's at about 65 or 75, uh, 70 miles north of uh, Smyrna. It had a population of somewhere around 200,000 people and, unique, it served as the capital of the Roman region of Asia. So all of the cities that we've heard about so far, all of them were in this um, administrative region that is Asia, but Pergamum is the capital. And that's incredibly significant because it tells us something about the nature of the city itself. It tells us that it was very much pro-Rome. In fact, in 29 BC, Pergamum had won a contest amongst uh, the cities in the region to build a temple to honor the emperor Augustus. And I studied Smyrna for a couple of weeks and now I'm studying Pergamum and what's jumping out to me is that back in the day, they had a lot of city competition 
to build things, to honor the emperor. And I don't know what all that would have looked like. I like to imagine a really strong tug of war. Anyway, all of that to say, that's just a joke. I'm just throwing it in there. It's raining outside. Y'all with me? Okay, here we go. In capital of Asia. So Pergamum was, Pergamum was in many ways the seat of emperor worship in the region. And just like I said last week, uh, it was kind of seen as civic responsibility to pray to the emperor and sprinkle incense to honor him, right? Not only in Smyrna like we talked about, but also here in Pergamum, same sort of thing is happening. But Pergamum didn't simply become the capital of Asia because it was zealous for Rome. That wasn't the only thing driving it. No, it became the capital of Asia in part because it served as a gathering place, a melting pot for a host of religious cults and pagan groups who worship various deities. They all found their home here in Pergamum, kind of the epicenter of all that worship. So let me name a few to give you an idea of what the church in Pergamum was facing on a daily basis. One of the things that would have caught your eye immediately upon entering Pergamum would have been a gigantic altar to the Greek god Zeus, king of the gods. It towered 800 feet above the city. And that's just the beginning. Pergamum was the home to the god uh, Asclepius, the serpent god of healing, often referred to in Greek mythology as a savior. There was a seat of worship for Athena, the goddess of wisdom and warfare. Demeter, the goddess of the harvest. And Dionysus, or if you want to be real Greek, Dionysos, the god of wine. They seem to have it all covered there, all in Pergamum. So Pergamum is this political religious center for the region. And the church in Pergamum, you have to understand for them, it was impossible to escape what was happening all around them constantly, 24 seven. And Jesus really brings all of that to the forefront when he says, look back at verse 13 with me. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You didn't deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. I mean, come on. What a description of a city. Chicago, the windy city. New York City, the city that never sleeps. Los Angeles, the city of angels. Nashville, the music city. Hershey, Pennsylvania, the sweetest place on earth. Pergamum, where Satan dwells. That's a tough ad campaign. I don't know how they did it. In all seriousness though, what a description by Jesus that captures the difficult nature of where the church in Pergamum finds itself. Not just that there are at least four of the most popular pagan cults of the day in their midst, there's also the expected worship of Caesar. Remember that? The issue that the culture has with Christians is not that they worship Jesus, that's not their deal. In this culture, you can worship whatever you want, whoever you want, Jesus included. But you better also worship Caesar. And just like I talked about last week, Jesus comforts them, I think, with those two words, I know. Which side note was telling to me over the past seven days where a lot of our folks are because I got a ton of messages and emails and texts and conversations with people who just said, I, I needed to be reminded that he knows. 
And here to the church Pergamum, he says, I know where you are. Isn't that great that God knows where you are? I know where you live. I know the difficulty in where you're living. I know how you're living in the midst of where you're living. And I know what has happened to some of those you care for, where you're living. These are words of encouragement that Jesus is offering to the church of Pergamum. He says, I wanna encourage you for holding fast to my name in the midst of Satan's dwelling place. You have held on to my identity as God incarnate and what I accomplished on the cross. And not only have you been faithful to my name, you've done so while someone in your midst was killed for following me, martyred for following me. And listen, we don't know much about Antipas, but I do love how the ESV translates this. If you look back at verse 13, he uses the word even. Even, you were faithful, even in the days of Antipas. And you see, by stating it that way, I think it makes the point that Jesus knows. Jesus knows that it might have been easy for them to deny the faith. Some would even say prudent, since people are getting killed. He knows the temptation for them to keep silent about their love for Jesus, even in the days of Antipas, but they did not. If you kill him, you might as well kill us because we won't be quiet about our faith in Jesus and the truth of the gospel. Now here's the deal. If Pergamum were Smyrna, we could celebrate this encouragement from Jesus, be reminded about it, feel good about it. I know, I know, I know, that's really great. It's good to be reminded of that. And then get onto the call to persevere in the midst of their current persecution by highlighting the positive things that await them but they aren't the church of Smyrna. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught that Balak put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so you might be a little confused and that's fair because we just read that they were commended for their faithfulness. We read that they were willing to stand firm in the face of persecution, even to the point of death. So what's this all about? What's going on in the midst of their church that would cause this kind of rebuke from the Lord in regards to two things in particular, food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality? I think maybe I could talk about it this way. In many ways, the church in Pergamum stood as the exact reverse of what we saw with the church in Ephesus when Charlie walked through that a couple of weeks ago. If you recall, in Ephesus, the church there emphasized truth to the point that they had abandoned love for one another and they were simply pursuing a cold orthodoxy. But in Pergamum, while the people in the church hadn't abandoned their faith, Jesus already said that, here's what had happened. They had grown lazy in the name of tolerance disguised as love, and they were allowing ethical, moral, and theological falsehoods to grow and spread throughout their congregation. Uh, that's the reference to the teaching of Balaam in verse 14. If you were to go back and, and read through the story 
uh, in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 25. If you're looking for some good reading this week, go give it a, go give it a read. And you would see Israel as they came to the land of Moab. In case you're wondering what it's about, it's about this. Israel, as they came to the land of Moab, they were preparing to head into the promised land and they were conquering tribes and kingdoms as they were led by the Lord. And the Moabites were led by a king named Balak, who we just read about, and he tried to pay to have this prophet named Balaam call down a curse on the Israelites. That was his great plan to thwart the Israelites from moving forward. And maybe you've heard about Balaam. He's the guy whose donkey talks to him and tells him to stop kicking him because if he keeps going, there's gonna be an angel with a sword that'll end Balaam. So it's a great story, give it a read. But what's remarkable about this is even though Balaam tries to curse Israel three different times, the Lord tells him each time that he tries to curse them that he's actually gonna bless them instead. And in the end, instead of being able to curse them, the only thing that Balaam can do is play a role in convincing Balak, the king, to have Moabite women seduce the Israelite men, and along the way, not only commit physical adultery, but spiritual adultery as well. And so Balaam becomes synonymous throughout Jewish history and scripture with false prophets who led people into immorality and idolatry. That's the reference. And the Nicolaitans mentioned here, they're also mentioned in Ephesus, their deal was basically this. They taught that the grace of God was a get out of jail free card. You could, you could live and do whatever you want, however you want, no consequences. Live and let live. If nobody's getting hurt, mind your own business. So that's the background that might help us better understand what Jesus is saying to the church of Pergamum. You see, they had stood firm in the face of outright political, social, and economic persecution. The really obvious forms of opposition to God, the clearly defined false teaching, they didn't sacrifice to the emperor. They weren't refusing to claim Jesus to save face. They were good to go in regards to all of those things, but over the course of time, they had allowed subtle forms of false teaching, various maybe under the radar forms of immorality and idolatry. It had all been allowed to grow and spread in the church. So based on what we read here in verses 14 and 15, maybe it was something like this. Hey Pergamum, you have some folks in your midst who are coming out of worshiping at the altar of Zeus and they're accustomed to eating this food sacrificed to idols. And they're accustomed to participating in various forms of temple prostitution. So rather than rock the boat and point them toward a moral and sexual, sexual ethic that mirrors what Christ taught, instead in the name of love and tolerance, we'll continue to allow them to operate however they want, they want to as long as they proclaim Christ. Or maybe it was, hey, we don't wanna step on anyone's toes who might be coming out of the pagan world, coming out of worshiping all these temples and practicing these things. So we're just not gonna to talk too much about that kind of stuff. 
We're not actually gonna talk about the kind of transformed life that the gospel of Jesus Christ grows in us and how it impacts every area of our life. It isn't someone threatening their lives if they don't recant their faith in Christ. Rather, it's their unwillingness to bring the beauty of the gospel to bear on all of life. Jesus says that's where the danger lies. Now my question for us is does that sound familiar in our cultural moment? Maybe it's something that you might admit you battle with at times, personally. If I'm honest, I think it's one of the greatest challenges facing the church in the upstate of South Carolina not just here, I just happen to be here. <laughs> Lots of places around the globe. It is this idea that we're being fed that um, tolerance is king. Or as one author says, tolerance as defined by the world around us holds high this idea that we must recognize and respect that every individual's values, truth claims, beliefs, and practices are equally valid. And with that mindset, truth is this moving target that gets to be defined by whoever's holding the target. And so because of that, tolerance is understood to mean that we as the church, we can't hold to anything that's black or white because you're intolerant. So according to that system, then respect looks like wholeheartedly approving of others' beliefs or lifestyle choices as equally valid. And then dignity in each person is defined by the fact Humans have an inherent worth shaped and realized by personal choice and standards created by the individual. Those few quotes there from the book, The Beauty of Intolerance. Now here's what we have to acknowledge. To many people, and maybe to you, I don't know, you, that sounds like an okay way to live and do life, right? I wanna be known as being tolerant, I'm being told where I live, work, and play that I have to be tolerant, which means for me to care about you, I'm gonna have to affirm that every truth, claim, and belief is equally valid. Every choice is equally valid. And I demonstrate that you have value when I elevate some sense of your personal fulfillment above everything else. And you know why that sounds great? to a whole lot of people and why the people of Pergamum in the church of Pergamum probably bought into it wholeheartedly. Because then you don't have to have any hard conversations with anybody. I mean, as great as it is that Pergamum held firm on the, the big stuff, their unwillingness to have these, uh, what I would call uh, little yet difficult yet gracious yet loving, yet firm conversations about what it means to live like and run after Jesus. 
not just with the profession of our mouths, but with the decisions of our lives. That unwillingness, according to Jesus, undermined the stability of their faith and the power of their testimony in a place that their faith and their testimony mattered a lot. So people in the church at Pergamum were saying, it's okay to eat the meal that has been sacrificed to idols and give yourself to whatever sexual practice you want as long as nobody's getting hurt. Idols are no big deal. And Jesus says to them, look back at verse 16, Jesus says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says to the church of Pergamum, turn around, head in the opposite direction of the way you've been headed. Leave that thinking behind and confront the sinful, destructive teaching and actions of the Nicolaitans, regardless of how painful or uncomfortable it might be. Face it head on. Jesus is coming to wage war against the Nicolaitans and the most loving thing you Pergamum, you Christ followers, the most loving thing you can do is point them to the truth and righteousness of Jesus. They said, no big deal. Jesus says, really big deal. Jesus says, what is associated with the idol is the presence of unseen spiritual forces. Because idols aren't just wood and stone. They could be, but they're made up of cultural values and political agendas and lifestyles and corporate values and even religious movements. Or as author Daryl Johnson says, idolatry of any sort is never a neutral act. Indeed, it is always a positive evil. And there's no way around having this conversation without acknowledging that the reality that is peace and harmony suffers at times when we're committed to walking with our brothers and sisters and having hard conversations in love about how the gospel impacts all of life, every area of our life. Now, please hear me closely. It's a little tense in here. I get it because of the topic. At the exact same time, I'm not advocating we be a church filled with theologically arrogant and morally judgmental jerk faces. That's not the deal. And if you spend any amount of time with us here at Fellowship Greenville, you know that's not our deal. If you look to Jesus as your ultimate example of how to live this out, you see he doesn't give us any room for that kind of nonsense. I refer you back to Charlie's message in regards to Jesus and his interaction with Zacchaeus. It doesn't mean that we don't welcome folks into our midst with open arms, we do. It doesn't mean that we don't give folks the space to wrestle with doubts and fears and frustrations with God, we do. Or those of us here that wrestle and battle against sin. 
but we can have the conversations that need to be had because as we said from the outset, as Christians, we're not primarily called to tolerance. We're called to love defined by truth. And if you're wondering what loving people with the truth in a love is tolerance world practically looks like, I think the key, I think the key to that is acknowledging and living in the reality of what Jesus says as he started this letter to the church at Pergamum. I actually wanna go back, I skipped it, you might have noticed the Christ title. Let's go back to verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So here in verse 12, we see Jesus described as one who has a sharp two-edged sword and then in his call to them to repent, we just read in verse 16, he says that if they refuse to repent, he will come to them and war against them with the sword of his mouth. So what is Jesus saying when he talks like this? Well, if you remember back a few weeks ago as we read through Revelation 1, verse 16, this isn't new imagery. He says the same thing there. Jesus is the one who from his mouth has a sharp two-edged sword. And here's what that means. It means that Jesus and only Jesus has authority. That was the, that's what the, the picture of the sword would have evoked in the minds of those in Pergamum who would have immediately thought of the Roman governors for whom the sword was a symbol of their right to rule and dole out justice as they saw fit. But Jesus is the one who has the ultimate authority And his sword is both two-edged and coming out of his mouth. Here's what that says to us. It tells us that it is by the power of his word that Jesus Christ has ultimate authority because he, as God, doesn't simply possess truth. He is the truth. And as it's two-edged, it lets us know that he has the ultimate authority to both judge his church and bring destruction and vindication against his enemies. And here's why that matters and why we need the reminder in the everydayness of our lives. It reminds us of who exactly is our arbiter for truth. It reminds us, church, who gets to define truth. You know who doesn't get to define truth? Me. You know who else doesn't get to define truth? you. You know, this doesn't get to define truth. Your friend at work who has read some pretty significant and well-reasoned books on the topic. You know, this doesn't get to define truth. Your family member or your neighbor who has the latest hot take on how to navigate loving people. It isn't any of them. It isn't any of us. Now those are all people that God has called us to love. They're image bearers of God. They have inherent worth, they have value, they have dignity, but they don't, we don't get to define truth. Jesus does. And in light of that, there's been a couple of questions that I've been considering this week that I wanna invite you to consider because this is the water we swim in. The whole idea of tolerance is the most important thing. So the question, the tension, the wrestle is this, how do we avoid simply becoming theologically astute jerks who have forsaken love like the church of Ephesians and at the same time not be passive? Live and let live. You're forgiven, so live however you want. 
Who am I to say anything? Tolerators, like some in the church of Pergamum. And I wanna suggest, instead of starting with other people, that we start with ourselves. Here's a question I was thinking about this week. Lord, where am I minimizing sin in my own life? If you're a note taker, feel free to jot it down and give it some thought. Lord, where am I minimizing sin in my own life? Here's what I know that I think you also know. What we don't repent of quickly has a way of turning into compromise over time. What we don't repent of quickly has a way of turning into compromise over time. Or maybe I could say it this way, you and I will not hold the truth of Jesus high if we have grown bored with pursuing Jesus. It's impossible to love those who are in sin if we ourselves are not intent on dealing with the sin in our own lives. If I'm spiritually unmotivated, having drifted to a place of nominal, complacent, going through the motions towards the things of God, then I will naturally and easily not only tolerate things in my own life, because I know I'm tolerating things in my own life, I would never speak into your life about things that shouldn't be tolerated. And it's just the reminder, you know, I know this isn't super popular for a lot of people to be talking about these days. Let's talk about repentance and sin. <laughs> Compromise for the church in Pergamum, and again, it was the church in Pergamum. I'm not talking about people who don't know Jesus. I wanna just remind us all of that. I'm talking about your brothers and sisters. I'm talking about you if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're listening today, listen in. Love to have conversations with you if you're interested in having a conversation. <clears throat> Compromise for the church in Pergamum wasn't overt. It was subtle, it was slow. It was a gradual shift from growing and maturing in Christ to simply hearing truth about Christ. And I think that's the challenge that faces the church in the West. If I could paint with a broad brush. Not just hearing truth, but growing and maturing in Christ because he is the truth. And I don't know what your walk with Jesus looks like and I don't know what your background is. I'm gonna acknowledge something really quick. This wasn't in the first service. Matt, I realize I'm gonna go over because I'm just talking now, but I think it's led by the Holy Spirit. Here we go. How often are we actually asking the question that just popped up on the screen when we become before the Lord in our times with the Lord? Lord, is there any place that I'm minimizing sin in my life? 
Not that I'm not loved, not that I'm not cared for, not that it's under the blood of the cross, all those things. Come on, phones. I'm just saying, asking that question to let the Spirit speak to things. The follow-up question would be this, Lord, where am I rationalizing indifference or tolerance towards others who I have relational capital with who aren't walking in the truth? Lord, where am I rationalizing indifference or tolerance towards others who I have relational capital with who aren't walking in the truth? Maybe I could ask it this way. Is it actually the most loving thing to say nothing in the name of tolerance to those that you love and care about as they walk or run down a road that will destroy them or keep them from living in the fullness of what God has for them in Jesus Christ? Is that actually the most loving thing you can do is not say anything? We read here in this passage, we looked at today that Jesus was passionately intolerant <laughs> of the teachings that were making their way passively through the church. The idea of do what you want, Jesus loves you, it doesn't matter if you mix what the world is selling you with Jesus. And I do think it's okay to stop and ask the spirit if we've been seduced into mindless indifference or rationalized the way the need to speak truth and love to those we do love because we filed it under the umbrella of the cultural hot topic of the moment, which is tolerance. And I put relational capital on purpose. I'm not telling you to go stand on a street corner and scream at anybody or anybody. I'm talking about your brothers and sisters in Christ that you have relational capital with, that you've backed off being intentional with. I just mentioned 100 students at Epic that acknowledge I have a relationship with Jesus, but I haven't been following after him. Is that just for our students? Or is that an all play, all skate for all of us to contemplate and think about? Aren't you glad that our student ministry team had the guts to ask those kinds of questions? I know you're asking them as moms and dads. I know you wanna ask them as moms or dads. Well, I want you to know that your heavenly father is asking the same thing of you today and the same thing of me. And that's the story of a lot of you in this room. The story of a lot of you in this room is that there was someone close to you who didn't let you keep running down the road. And I know it's under the sovereign hand of God. I know that he's orchestrating all of the stuff. I also know that there was somebody who loved you enough to not let you run down that road under the umbrella of let's just be tolerant, let everybody do whatever they wanna do. Cause it didn't hurt anybody, but it is. Now, lest you think we conclude our time only processing our sin, <laughs> we won't. We never do. Jesus doesn't. So let's read the words of promise from Jesus to the church of Pergamum. And they are words of promise for us to today. This is what it says in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
This is so good. The promise of those who walk with Jesus, his church, is that they, just like Israel was fed with manna from heaven as they made their way to the promised land, the church will be fed by Jesus himself, who is the bread of life, or as author Sam Storms likes to say, Jesus and only Jesus will be the sustenance of our body and soul for all of eternity. On him alone shall we spiritually feed and draw strength. He is the source of our ongoing and eternal life. We are forever dependent on the infusion of his grace and mercy. What's Sam saying that Jesus was saying to the church of Pergamum? I believe it's this. There is coming a day when we will never tire of Jesus. You'll never be bored with singing praises to his glorious and wonderful name, thinking about how you can beat the crowd to get out of here quicker. You will never be underwhelmed with his grace towards you. You will continually be captivated by who he is and the fullness of which he knows you. John's gospel, John 6, John writing all of this. John knows, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I am your sustenance. I am your life. I am the truth. I am your truth because I am the truth. It's no coincidence then that at the end of Revelation, in Revelation 19, we have the marriage feast, the supper of the lamb, wherein the bride of Christ feasts with and celebrates with Jesus, her husband. And the white stone is probably a reference to stones that were given. There's a lot of thoughts on the white stone thing. Read a lot of different things on that. Fascinating. Probably a reference to stones that were given to folks to be able to access back in the day rituals and festivals to participate in the trades of the day. It was a pass, it was, a, it was access. And yet here, Jesus says, there's a new name on it. You got access and it's your name, a new name. Referencing our new identity in Christ, our union with Christ. So imagine Look forward, there is this feast and you have access to it because of who you are in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is pointing our eyes forward. He's pointing the eyes of those in Pergamum of the church there, pointing them forward and saying, this is what awaits you, a new day where you will be with me and you will feast with me and you'll have access to me because you are mine. And you and I will know the fullness of Jesus's name even as he knows the fullness of your name and my name. And that's not only true for you if you're in Jesus Christ. It's true for those that the Spirit of God brought to your mind a moment ago when you asked yourself a question. Let's pray together. Father God, I'm incredibly thankful for the opportunity you regularly give for us to gather together, sing praises to your name, to be reminded of who we are in you, to open the scriptures together. I thank you for a place like Fellowship Greenville, the commitment to teach through the Bible. 
to not simply skip around to topics or passages that might be more easily digestible for folks. Would you in your kindness and grace continue to put your finger on things in our lives that we need to repent of? Not because they're not covered under the blood, they are. But because we know that uh, by minimizing our sin, negating our sin, we miss the beauty of you and what you actually have done for us. So I pray the Fellowship Greenville will be known as a place open arms, open doors, loving people that are questioning things about God, doubts, struggles, fears, so welcome here. And at the exact same time, we're known for loving our brothers and sisters enough to have conversations. In this tolerance is king culture, would you keep that from bleeding into how we relate to one another? walking with each other in love and truth. And we can do that because you are love and you are truth and we're in relationship with you. So that makes it all possible. Not easy, possible. So yeah, keep adding to our number. Not because they're numbers, it's people. that you love. In Jesus' sweet name we pray, amen.